Hey everyone, and welcome to the House Conspiracy Podcast, a show about the house and on the house. I'm Jonathan O'Brien, and I'm the founding creative director at House Conspiracy. Today, I'm broadcasting one of my favorite chats I've ever had on tape. There have been other favorites in terms of very specific insights, discourses, and so on, but this conversation with Joseph Burgess is one of the ones I could easily continued over a beer or six. After about five minutes, I, I think you'll, uh, you'll understand why I say this right now, that Joe is the exact kind of guy you'd expect to be documenting Australia's paleontological history via a bizarre puppet-driven pseudo-documentary. Now, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, visit us at houseconspiracy.org, and learn how we can support you. I speak quickly because I don't want to delay. On to the show. Joseph Burgess is an American navigating Australia and he's good at it. His studio is paint, both spray and brush applied, a tarp and Anzac Day slogans, lest we forget. A puppet of an extinct giant koala sits in the back corner of the room wearing a baseball hat. Joe wears this big white jumper to the interview with rope-like cords. I learned today that he cares about clothes more than I would have guessed. I don't know what else to say, really. Joe's an enigma, and I kind of want him to take you on the journey he took me on without much interference on my end. Here's Joseph Burgess. Oh, I want that breakfast. I had baked beans. Um, no, it's good. I like I like I like my beans. That's cool. You can't go can't go wrong with some beans. In the right moment, I like some beans too. Uh, yeah. it's just so filling. They make me think of like New Zealand and being on a dairy farm and like eating beans on toast with the farmers. And Did you do that for a while? Just like two months. Yeah. What was the context? Why'd you end up out there? Ooh. Um <laughs> so I had an Argentinian girlfriend while I was in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And, you know, most Argentinians don't enjoy cold weather, but somehow a lot of them end up in New Zealand because they have a good working holiday scheme there. Yeah, in New Zealand. Yeah. So I was hanging out with this Argentinian girl in Wellington and she was like, I really want to go to a dairy farm and like take care of little cows. And I thought, okay, um, yeah, we'll see about that. And then it was like coming into winter and she wanted to go to the South Island and I had a hookup for a farm down there because my Chilean friend went down and did a, uh, a little stint on the farm. And uh, yeah, I called the farmer, set it up for her and she went down there and I was like, well, you know, I'm going to stay up here for a bit and do my thing. And she went down there for a month and I came like a month later and I had like my first go at farming like with animals and I've kind of got like a strange fear of animals in a way, not a fear, but it's like a respect in a way of their space. And this was like putting me like right up and like with like a cow, like right up on you yeah. all the time. And like you're running through fields that are like up to your knees in mud sometimes. And there's dogs that like chase the cows. And it's just a pretty wild experience. We're like, you know, herding cattle on a four wheel drive. And um, yeah, after about two months, so I had enough. Like I just, I couldn't handle it. And um, I actually got violently ill. 
Whoa. What is violently <laughs> ill? I'm not going to go into the gross details. <laughs> yeah, but, right. um, it's, uh, yeah, that was the end of my farming career. Yeah, just in case anyone's eating while they're, while they're listening. Yeah. Um, okay, so have you... Because you're from Ireland. No. No. I'm from America. You're from America. That's right. <laughs> but people think you have an Irish accent, but you're from America. I was, am I inventing I, this from when we I don't know. When I met you? I don't know. It, I mean, everybody has their invention of perception of someone else. It's like, I imagine your reality based on the bits that I know. And then I try to optimize that reality throughout the time that I know you and like fill in certain aspects like you like death grips. You're going to death grips on Friday. That like fills out one like mysterious corner of you. Yes. One bit at a time. Yeah, I just have no idea why why that false piece of information lodges itself. So Maybe because I play fiddle. Sorry. Maybe because I play fiddle. Do you play fiddle? Yeah. I didn't know you played fiddle. Ah. Well. Um. <laughs> How long have you been playing fiddle, Joe? Ah, oh, like seven years. Seven yeah, well, or eight years. Yeah, I I started playing, and. I'd played guitar and piano and like I had a good grasp of music theory and I thought like I want to get into something where you can like really slide around and get in between the notes. So I was like teaching myself how to play. Everybody was just like, please stop. Please, <laughs> yeah. please just yeah. stop already. Bowed instruments are awful when you're learning. Go back to the guitar or just, just stop playing music. Like I had like girlfriends that were just like extremely tolerant up to a point. Um, but uh, then I fell off a ladder Whoa, and okay. broke my left hand. No, my right While hand. While fiddling? No. <laughs> that would be pretty cool, though. <laughs> that, would be, that would be a decent backstory, I think. Mm. That's like a music video concept right there. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. fiddles so hard, he falls off a ladder. And yeah. Like, yeah. Like, devil went down to Georgia, but like, devil went, devil went up a ladder. Up. <laughs> <laughs> looking for, looking for a, a window to seal. Yeah, I like mm. that. Yeah, yeah, we've got a we've got a hit parody video on our hands <laughs> right now. <laughs> the, the actual question I was going to ask you is, uh, how how much of your life have you spent traveling on the road? Like, you're obviously you're in Australia now. How long you been here, and then how long were you elsewhere? Ooh, what have you done with yourself? <laughs> what am I doing with my life? Um, it's a complicated thing because, like, I left for the first time when I was like 21. Mm-hmm. I went to Argentina and kind of with the intention of broadening my horizons and like learning Spanish in a foreign country and like, I don't know, I just wanted to test the waters and like I had a lot of synchronicities that sort of led me there. Like I pretty much just picked the first country out of a book of all the South American countries. You picked the one that started with A. Yeah. And it was kind of perfect because it actually fit a lot of the things that I sort of uh, resonate with and so I was there for a couple of months and then I came back home and I was just like I don't want to stay in Portland it's like this place is great I love my friends I love my family but like I've already had my adventures here you know like Portland's small it's like the size of a teacup and what's uh, the population of Portland uh Back then, it was less than a million. Yeah, okay. And, like, the whole state was, like, 1.2 million. So you're talking about, like, a square maybe about as big as, like, somewhere between Victoria and Tasmania in size but with, like, you know, similar size population to, like, the South Island of New Zealand. It's yeah. very similar to New Zealand, actually. Um, but New Zealand is quite similar to a lot of places in the world because of 
like the crazy geology that's pushed that country into existence. And um, yeah, that was sort of like my first taste. But then I had always had this like sort of odd dream of coming to Australia. And there was like this sort of pull for me to go there. Um, after I visited the Natural History Museum in New York um, with a good friend who was from Portland, Maine, uh, that was studying in Seattle, we made this plan to like hitchhike from Portland to Portland <laughs> when we were like 18. And um, it was somebody that like I'd been introduced to once and they're like, yeah, he wants to go to Maine and he wants to hitchhike. And I was like, oh, cool. Well, let's do it. And the first time I met him, I was actually violently ill. Not to tie it in with the New Zealand story. Why are you always violently ill? I don't know. I, th I think I have like a, I have a really strong immune system, but then when I get like sick, I'm just. You're out. Dying. Yeah. Dying. Yeah. Sure. On so the anyway, trip. Get me the trip. Okay. <laughs> start, start signing away your will. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Figuring out who oh. you're next to kin. Yeah. Mm. All that business. Um. So anyway, you met this guy, you were violently sick. Hitchhiking yeah. To me. And, uh. Like I was like on the ground in a blanket and there was like a honey bear upside down on the table spewing out honey all over the place. And like he came in and he's like, whoa, this guy, he's really sick. <laughs> <laughs> and then three months later, we met up again and we left from Portland, like from the Hollywood district, puts our thumbs out there and then got picked up like almost immediately by this guy driving down the road with two chihuahuas in the front. And we're like cruising down the road with this guy and he's on the phone with his lawyer the entire time about some like drama in a hotel room where his son was like smoking in the room and they got kicked out for having dogs in the room and they were getting sued. It was just ridiculous stuff. And our trip just like had lots of um, interesting experiences. Like people always think like hitchhiking is pretty dangerous and people think that America is pretty dangerous because everybody's got guns, but like, Aside from one ride, I'd say we had a really, really cruisy trip. What was the one ride that wasn't cruisy? Ooh, it, it was this guy that picked us up and he was like, we were on the turnpike in Ohio. I have family in Ohio. They're like kind of redneck, but lovely people um, when you can get past some of their political views. Sure. But we're there at the turnpike thinking like, we're kind of stuck here. We need to get out of here. And... This guy picks us up and he's like, yeah, I'll take you to like the next stop on the turnpike for five bucks. And it's like, uh, yeah, why not? Let's just move, you know? And we get in the car with him and then he's like, oh, I'll take you to the next one for like 10. <laughs> and then by the, the second one, he's like, oh yeah, um, can you give me like 50 bucks? I was like, no way. You know, we gave him, I don't know, like 15 bucks. And then we, we got, we got out and the police saw us hitchhiking on the side of the road. We got like pulled up. And they're like, don't you know it's illegal to hitchhike on the turnpike in Ohio? Is it? Yeah, apparently. It's, huh. It varies from state to state. Like in Oregon, it's totally legal. You can hitchhike anywhere. Yeah. But Ohio and Wyoming and a couple of these other places, it's like, it's illegal, but you can still do it. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. The police will just remind you that it's illegal. Yeah. And in this case, they were like pretty firm and just like, how are you going to get out of here? So I had to like think like, okay, who can I call? I'll call my Uncle Joe. And uh, I call my Uncle Joe and I'm just like, hey, uh, we're in Ohio and <laughs> we're off the turnpike. Do you think you could come pick us up? We're at the police station. He's like, oh, you're at the police station. And then like the first thing he dropped is like, did they make you spread them? 
Ah, God. So he's he's a real police faring redneck then. Yeah. Yeah, my Uncle Joe, he was like, he was in the army for a bit. He, w- he went to green hell. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he, he has a perception of the world that's shaped by his experience. So, Wait, what exactly is green hell? I believe it was like a boot camp in Panama in the 70s. Yeah, right. Yeah, like... I don't know. My dad's generation of brothers, like they were all pretty hippie except for the oldest brother. But like they had like this really cruisy life, like hitchhiking, going to the West Coast and going back. And then like Uncle Joe joined the military and like had this other alternate reality where he actually like left the country. And when he came back, he was like a steel worker for the rest of his life. Yeah, right. And now he's like a bus driver, but retired. It's... You know, how things go. Anyways, cutting to the chase. <laughs> we got through Ohio and then we just had our last stretch of like, you know, hitchhiking through Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so we get to like the edge of the border of Pennsylvania, New York at like 10 o'clock on a Sunday night. And it's like, it's Father's Day night. And... Um, no one would pick us up anymore. It was too late, too dark. And we like, just like hiked over a hill to this crazy bus stop on the edge of the border at like Delaware Water Gap, I think the name of the place was. And um, get on a bus for like two hours and we get off in New York City and it's like, like six in the morning and I open my backpack and this butterfly just like flies out. It's so surreal. It's just... And, like, I didn't imagine it. It was reality. And we had breakfast, like, two times. And then we went to the Natural History Museum. Just, like, ragged, tired. Yeah. Walking through there with my friend Owen, who's, like, a natural history sort of buff. His dad was a photographer for National Geographic and specialized in underwater photography. And um, we get to the top floor. And it's, like, all the animals that existed in the Ice Age. Mm Mm-hmm internationally like all the biggest ones and then like growing up in the states you don't get exposed necessarily to this missing link between noah's ark and what actually happened and for me it was just like i'd always sort of had like an inkling like i just like i didn't believe in noah's ark i thought it was pretty ridiculous because how do you account for things like kangaroos how do you account for like this big gap of time and the animals that we have now versus all the animals yeah, yeah, that of were there before. So, like, I get up there, and this is just like blowing my mind. Seeing like giant woolly mammoths, like for the first time, like in person. Seeing like giant kangaroos, giant wombats, like all the skeletons, and like, just for me, it was like this is sort of a sea change moment in my direction in life. It's like I knew that that was going to be something later, and it was like I had an idea with it not a very formed idea, just a loose like sort of observation that was like, okay, I'm going to hang on to this and put it in my pocket for later. And then like, ooh, five years later, I'm sitting there holding a baby, feeding her a bottle. It's not my baby, by the way. But <laughs> I was a manny for a time in my career of jobs in Portland. Like I was pretty much what they call like a PDXican. Like I did any work like normally for like minimal pay just to like get by and like support my arts and so for a time I was a babysitter and I'm taking care of this like little girl who's like six months old and sitting there like there's a 
National Geographic with all these Australian animals just like, it was like this article about Australia's lost giants and like, mm. it's just like, it was like, damn, what am I doing? I'm like living the American dream at a house. I've got a dog. There's a car. I've got a baby that's not mine. <laughs> I'm like 23. I should be doing something else. And, uh, you know, like I, I started making steps towards like, okay, I'm going to do something else. And that thing that's been in my pocket all this time, I've got to do something with it. Like, I've got to make some moves towards leaving the country, which like I'd sort of been planning on that for a while. And there's a few things that were like feeding into that. I'll save those for later because they're not megafauna related. Yeah, sure. And so then you, you ended up here. Yeah. After like maybe a year of preparing and like adjusting my life, I had a stop motion studio back in Portland. So I like consolidated that, put it all in a basement, said goodbye to my friends, said, I'll see you in a year. And then like came here with sort of like a camera and like maybe a couple of grand and then just burned through the money and spent like the first like six months just like living in Melbourne, did a little bit of trips in Tasmania and like I started volunteering at the museum to just get that like really hands-on experience with the bones and understand the anatomy as I started to build the first puppet and just like, you know, piece by piece, it's like how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? How do you make a movie about giant animals? One animal at a time. So I started with the giant kangaroos and then worked my way over to like the drop bear. Um, well, it's Thylacaleo. It's like this harsh sort of mean animal that descends from a wombat. It's similar in certain morphological characters to like a possum and a Tasmanian devil, but it's like it's truly a unique animal. It had hooded claws like a cat. And it was like just this mean carnivorous like kind of giant possum about the size of a puma tearing up the joint in prehistoric Australia so I started working on that animal too and like taking it into like trees and taking it to the tops of buildings and you know hoisting it up with fishing lines just trying to like use every MacGyver trick in the book to make these things realistic you know on a shoestring budget and then I ran out of time yeah my visa was up and I was like, how am I going to stay here? And, you know, like, just like the average foreigner struggle at the end of the visa, calling up lawyers, like trying to find a way to stay. Mm -hmm. And like, pretty much had to leave. And you did? Yeah, I left. I went to New Zealand with the intention of like staying maybe one month. And um, New Zealand was like, for me, it was like a renaissance in my life. It was just like, whoa, this country is so fresh. I think I'm going to stay more than a month. I ended up staying like a year and a half. And just like New Zealand's where I really found my creative practice and like was able to marry the things that were sort of separate. And I started focusing on the New Zealand megafaunus and the moa and the host eagle. And with the host eagle, like I was there with like a whole team of South American backpackers, just like all of us were all together, like stretching this giant fishing line from the top of like the patio of someone's house that we just knocked on the door and introduced ourselves and said, we want to fly a giant eagle off your back patio, can we? And I'm like, yeah, why not? So we just like tie it up to the top. We've got two people on the top, three people on the bottom, and then two cameramen in the middle. And like the whole production's going down in Spanish. And it's just like directing everybody like, hey, okay, I think we need to drop it again. And um, 
you know, just this really ridiculous experience. Like New Zealand, you can get away with so much more. And like one time we're then like, here? I would say then here. Yeah. And like certain places in Australia, it's more flexible than others. We're in like probably like the biggest hotbed of nanny state action you could possibly imagine in Brisbane. Like for me, this place is like nearly suffocating in a health and safety um, context. Yeah. But within that, I find that suffocation as something to play with. Like I have my traffic controller's license. I you can, do. I, I can legally direct traffic. Um, and I think that like engaging with people. How does one get a traffic controller's license? Uh, you take a course, which is just pretty much like the most racist sort of. Um, oh, I, I, I hate to start it with the most racist, but just like the most like shallow, narrow minded classroom I've ever been in where they just tell you how to turn a stop and slow back. They take your money, and then you do 20 hours of unpaid training. And the unpaid training, I swear I never laughed as hard as that in my entire life. These guys are like absolute characters, absolute like lifers. From the minute they start working in traffic control, there's pretty much no leaving. Because it's like when you have a job that cruisy and your belly gets... We've just had a Craig Garrett pop through. Um, yeah, so when you have a job that cruisy. Yeah, when you have a job that cruisy and you allow yourself to get to you know, that sort of physical state where it's like you've got like two watermelons in your gut, yep. it's like there's not much else you're going to want to do. It's like <laughs> you're, you're settled. Career is, uh, you know, you, what? there's no lateral movement either. No. What's traffic control and money like? Half mm. decent? Well, it's like it starts at 26. Mm-hmm. And then if you do after 6 p.m. until 6 a.m., it's time and a half. Yeah. If it's on the weekends, they have like crazy penalty rates. I think it's time and a half the whole time. And then if it's a weekend night, like after 6 p.m., it's double time. So you're making like $50 an hour in some cases turning a sign. Yeah, all right. And these guys just smoke cigarettes the whole time and like talk about motorcycles. And they were just like, what are you doing here? <laughs> But we got along. We got along. We found like some common interests and I yeah, find yeah, with yeah. people that might not seem like you have much in common, if you can, you know, pilot your way through the conversation, you can find things that you might actually have in common. And these guys, they were just like totally hating on Trump. So it was like, we got together on that and we got together on like, you know, so many other things that I won't go into. I think, too, like when you're a traffic controller, you sort of have to play the character. Like I played the character of myself as a tra- traffic controller. It was like a theater piece. Sure. Um, what, or, what, what's different about you when you're the character of traffic controller Joe? Traffic controller Joe. Traffic Joe. Traffic Joe, yeah. Traffic Jam Joe. Traffic Jam Joe. That's it. That's, <laughs> your, that's your new name. It's all about the swagger on the walkie-talkie. And oh, yeah? Like, you have to use the correct terminology. You can't be mixing things up. You can't be calling, you know, a 4B a heavy sandwich if it's not a heavy sandwich. Uh, so I learned all the traffic controller lingo, like, you know, how to describe if you have a big truck, a small truck, and then a big truck again, that's a heavy sandwich. It's a heavy sandwich. Okay. Yeah. And sure. then they have all these other ones like heavy sandwich with mayo and a whole slew of other things. They had a lot of words too that were for like, for the, uh, the digging machines and I mean, I forgot some of them. I haven't been working in it recently, but I'm saving <laughs> your it. Traffic, like, your traffic jam Joe days are over. It's not over. It's like, I just, I did the course and then I got too busy with everything else. Yeah. 
but I'm coming back to it. There's like some unfinished business with traffic jams. Between jam you jam. and traffic jams. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not done on jamming yet. <laughs> um, so you're here, you're making a megafauna movie. You've sort of touched on it, but you haven't necessarily explicitly explicated the project the megafauna project can you give us like a quick summary for, for the people like the concrete home? summary or the cosmic summary like both maybe starting with concrete and then give me some cosmic okay okay we'll start with concrete so you know like you get the concrete mixer you put in the ingredients you mix it up and you stand by it and act like you're really you know proud of your concrete um no really like the megafauna project is like it's for me, it's like this like crazy traveling spiritual journey that like I've put out some of the episodes of it. I've kind of taken in the science world of it. Like I went around Australia, like interviewing all the top paleontologists, ancient DNA guys, um, talking to some conservationists, talking to hydrologists and like taking all of those interviews and looking at what they're all saying and finding the right combo of science with humor yeah, to tell the story. And it, it takes a really long time because you're dealing with like extremely complex subjects that need to be distilled down to like a level that, you know, a teenager can understand. Yeah, I was originally thinking it's going to be for kids, but I think like kids just based on like my feedback from YouTube and 10 year olds that say, what the heck is this bull crap? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. To my flying Eagle video. It's like, okay, I don't think my market's kids. And I don't think it's like necessarily just about defining your market. It's about like making something that you're resolutely proud of and that you stand behind and that shows like the resolution of your concept for it. And like my concept started out as like the story of the megafauna, you know, and focusing on how they lived and like to take that to a slightly cosmic perspective. It's like, let's reimagine that they're in the environment that we yeah, are they're now. Like still around like Schrodinger's cat, like the experiment where you have a cat that's in a room with a radioactive substance and there's a 50, 50 chance that it could be alive or dead. But within that chance, there's a reality for both and that particles exist independently of each other in sporadic locations and they come together for one reality or the other. So there is a chance there is the other reality. So like in the cosmic perspective of the Australian Megafauna Project, it's like I'm taking those animals and putting them directly back in to this landscape. And this landscape has changed so much in the last 200 years and changed quite drastically in the last 50,000 to 100,000 years. So like looking at that 50,000 years uh, mark where it's like roughly the beginning of their final demise, and you look at like the hydrological, um, the hydrological data. It's like Australia was so much more lush, just so really? much more beautiful, and like just like dripping water. Like there's like major lake systems in the central desert that now are just like truncated down to just smaller um, inland lakes. But it's like there was overlapping that was going on. So you have like whole ecosystems of like aquatic life that are just pretty much completely gone. Is that why there are uh, like giant megalodon skeletons in the middle of Australia? That's kind of from an earlier time because the megalodons, it's like, it's, it's a whole other 
basket oh, of worms. Oh, like, yeah, yeah. very cool worms. basket though. Uh, very toothy. But you have like giant crocodiles, for example, found in the central desert, like big, robust Arnold Schwarzenegger style crocodiles that were living there like 8 million years ago, found on like Alcuda Reserve, uh, places like Bullock Creek. And it's not just the water, it's the animals' um, interaction with the water too. So you have like animals that don't live in the water, but they're also present in like freshwater um, species of like crabs and things that like, you don't find them there anymore. But the weird thing is about every 10 years now, you do get these big rains that build up certain spots where, you know, it can flood again and then make like pretty much an orgy of birds because they're the only ones that can get to it. Right. So taking that in mind, like my more concrete goal with it is to show people the environmental change, not to like convert them to any kind of environmentalist dogma. I think, you know, most people that are convinced are, you know. I think most people are more or less there. Yeah, it's it's another subject and like I don't want to make an environment documentary. I want to make a megafauna documentary that shows the environment. Right, and, right. It's like a, it's it's an inevitable byproduct of the vision that you're executing. Yes. It's not the vision itself. Yeah, and like the environment, the environmental aspect of it is like the food for thought that mm. I think people would pick up on even if it's not explicit because, I mean, showing that, showing that inland sea and showing like the disparity between what it was before and what it is now is like crucial. In, yeah. in telling that story. With with that too, it's like you look at Queensland, this big giant place, and it's like there's like evidence of hyper rainforest, you know, um, much further inland than you see now. And you see sites like, um, like Riversley, where you had this amazing deposit of fossils that show an earlier time, and they show an environment that was just insane. And like now you look at it and it's pretty much just like this weird oasis in the middle of the desert. And um, I want to show those things, but I think like the key thing to getting the story across is just showing it in a humorous light. Yeah. And, you know, showing the best of the paleontologists and they're pretty much like a punk rock scene. Like it's that small, it's that close knit they all, all know each other. They all know their quirks. They all know, like, everybody's dirty business. Yeah. And, like, they're all, you know, fighting on papers. And there's, like, this older generation that's just held on and, like, they don't want to let go. And I've interviewed those guys. And I've actually, like, done work for them in separate projects and gotten to know some of them really well. And it's, like, they did so much. They were, like, such rebels to come here and, like, go searching into like super remote places just to go look for these bones. And then here we are, this like, we're like the third generation down people our age in our twenties to thirties, people doing their PhDs. Now we're all kind of like keen and like pushing to like develop and show further resolution of the story. And like the middle generation, they've just like, you know, worked with what the previous generation has done, tried to adapt to kind of their old school ways, but it's like now everything has gone entirely like much more digital in the process for scientists. Like everybody's using R, everybody's doing like more modeling and trying to put the puzzle together. And there's a bit more consensus now too. So like with the extinction, people always want to say it's a very clear narrative of these animals that were here and then human arrival happened and just like everywhere else the animals went extinct but 
like when you look at like the hydrology and you look at the fact that all this water is going away and you look at how easy it is for an animal to go from being big to small, it's not such a clear-cut narrative. Mm. And like to tie that up is my big goal with the film is not to make a statement about how they went extinct exactly. It's to just show the myriad of perspectives and help people to see that. And get the idea that like the, there maybe isn't a clear-cut narrative, but maybe the most interesting part is that these massive things were here. Yeah, and that they were alive, and it's not just a binary of how they went extinct. It's like it's a very holistic um, extinction. And like the other sort of factor in it too is just like looking at Australia as a whole, including Papua New Guinea, because Papua New Guinea is on the same plate. Yep. And Papua New Guinea has some fossil deposits that are like just incredible, showing you know things that were more similar to like say like a megafaunal panda. But that's still a marsupial called Hulotherium thomasi. And there's so many deposits there that haven't been touched in like caves. So like my my long-term goal is to get on to Papua New Guinea before I finish the documentary and include that and try to tell the story with a complete perspective, even if it takes me longer to do it with like a very clear resolution of of the country and put it out in a way so it's accessible so people can can see it. And um, there's, a, there's other aspects of it that I could go into, but it's kind of like, if you want to keep it more concrete, it's like these puppets are just like found objects that I, you know, will down into, you know. Being to something representations that of. Yeah, and they're based like on the actual anatomy. So like this next one that I'm about to start filming during the residency here is this giant koala, um, Fascolarctos sturtoni. And koalas, you know, as we all know, they're kind of in a tight situation in Queensland with all the development. They're getting pushed and their populations are really retracting. They've got chlamydia. They all have chlamydia. They're pretty gnarly. They almost gave Harry Styles chlamydia. It's a big thing. Yeah, yeah, it's like... They're punk rockers, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're high all the time. Yeah, they're pretty much just like, what do, we, what do you call it? Uh, bludgeon daubers or, oh, uh, or dobbin bludgers? Yeah, that's it. Doll bludgers. Yeah, 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 sure. They're, they're, they're yeah, they're stoner doll bludger. And creatures. they're just getting the money and like, you know, not doing anything with it. Except for getting like, I don't know. There's a lot of things that I could say about like the current state of affairs for koalas that <laughs> I've thoroughly researched like what what is what is one more thing you could say about the current state of affairs of koalas that they're fucked yeah yeah between the monopoly of all the big businesses and the developers the multinationals and i dare i even say the conservation organizations and the general nature of the koalas narrative it's like it's been made this poster boy of cute australian animals that are pushing towards extinction and it's the last, the very, very last species of an incredibly rich, diverse family that's been around for like about 12 million years. So it's like, it's like the, the thylacine, like the Tasmanian tiger, but it's, yeah. like, it's still around. In Queensland, it, it's on the verge of going like functionally extinct, like, and the numbers may not recover. Um, in Victoria, it's a little bit of a different situation. I don't think that they're going to go extinct in our lifetime, but I think with the 
direction things are going, they're not going to make it. They'll end up in like a similar situation to panda bears. Yeah. And like, they're pretty much on the way there. It's like you go to, I don't even want to name drop some of these places because, you know, if they catch on to it, they'll say, oh, that's that fucking guy. But it's just like they are a cash cow. Yeah. And now actually like coming here with like the intention of doing this project, I realized that in the process and it's like, it actually makes me really disgusted. Like to the point where it's like, I, from what I've seen and what I've experienced with it, it just like disgusts me to a level that's like maybe one of the things that has pushed me the hardest in my creative practice to do this with like my own means and get it out there with my actual statement behind it and not, not lean it towards anybody else's vision of it because between talking to the scientists and the conservationists and talking to developers and people that work like building things, um, I see a very clear narrative and I think that it's like very essential to celebrate the animal, but also make it so it is like much in the way of the Anzacs, which has been kind of like a revelation of mine recently. It's like, it's a celebration of defeat. And I think the sooner we start celebrating that defeat, there's maybe more of a chance for conservation. Hmm. Is that because you've got sort of an Anzac sort of thing going on in your studio room? So that's that connection there. Is that celebration of defeat? In a way. I mean, for that, for me, the Anzacs, it's like, it's this kind of foreign thing. Like I didn't grow up here. I didn't grow up with like Anzac biscuits. And like, I was here for the hundred year um, memorial. Yeah. It was a couple of years ago now. Wasn't yeah. It? it was a couple of years back. And I just remember thinking, 2015. Like, what is this? You know? And I'd heard different things about the Anzacs but like hadn't like really fully um, been filled in on the story. And like, I don't want to say anything too controversial because I know it's like a very strong nationalistic um, pastime holiday. It's a biscuit. Every, it's fucking biscuit. Every, every Anzac day seems to be uh, just what controversy are we going to get this year? Yeah. Um, Lately. Because we have Woolworths capitalizing on the 100-year thing. It's a cash cow. Yeah. and It's the easiest cash cow for the baby boomers of Australia. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's – I think think the biggest problem with Anzac Day, not to inject myself here, but – Please. Is that no one knows what it is. Insofar as no one actually knows what – what it constitutes is it for just anzac is it for gallipoli or is it for all soldiers or is it for all those who have lost their lives you know it's no one knows no no one there's no cultural agreement on what the day signifies and so of course everyone pisses everyone else off on the day more and more these you know we had like yeah i don't know if you saw yasmin abdel mcgig came out and made this stupid tweet um but then the hate that she got for a, like a dumb tweet was so astronomical. And it was like, whoa, hang on, hang on, hang on. She said something dumb, but she didn't say something worth putting her on a cross for. Yeah. But So it was weird because she interpreted Anzac Day in a way that people didn't agree with. And yet the people, like people who were fighting back against her those people all listed different things that Anzac Day was and that like different reasons that she was bad. 
And it was like, well, that's the problem is that no one's, we don't have an understanding here. Exactly. And I think too, as a foreigner coming to this country, it's like to see how it's presented and then to see how it's kind of, um, I don't want to use the word curtail because that sort of refers to like diminishing it. Yeah. But the way that it's uh, retrofitted no, it to commercial no, I think endeavors, is fair. Yeah. Um, I just, I find that really challenging. And I also find that like, as you try to get a clear definition out of people, what is this day? You get such a variety of answers and like, you know, the, with all things that pertain to war, the history is always retold by the victors. And I think the history of Anzac would be quite different if um, if World War One had turned out a different way. Well, yeah, and it's also, it, it seems, the interesting thing is that while it's an Australian touchstone, the version of the story we tell is the British version. Yes, which also deals with a strong aspect of the Australian identity. And like with the Australian identity too, it's like, it's... A, it's a, it's a hard question for, I think, most Australians to answer, like, what is the Australian identity? And, like, I believe that it's a very, um, much more diverse identity than it's perceived to be. Because, in a way, Anzacs and many other aspects of Australian culture celebrate a very British version of Australia. Yes. But Australia is actually like a really diverse place with a lot of different ethnic groups. And like, you know, it's I, actually I, just about the most successful multicultural country in the world. Exactly. And in it, fact, it, it is yeah. I'll go on record. <laughs> yeah. It's a good record to have too. And I feel Great like record. that should be celebrated more. And I had like a really strong resistance to the Anzacs for quite a while because it's like, I, I didn't understand it. That's fair. No and one I probably don't is really like war answers. memorials. Like, mm. I just I think that it's like in this life, it's important to remember the past, but like to carry on about something that involves just like killing people and people dying, and to keep celebrating that is like it's a bit morbid. But on the other hand, you're sort of looking at the deaths of animals, but you're is it about the honesty of the representation rather than what is being represented? It's ultimately about perception of that because from my perspective previously, I've had a, a couple of experiences recently that I think have sort of changed my view on Anzacs in, in a positive light actually. Hmm. But just like looking at how that um, loss of human life is valued and then when you look at something like ecosystem service, when you look at how over time our perception of nature has evolved and our perception of the value of nature has dramatically shifted towards like how much is this plot of land worth? And that's when you start getting into other sort of aspects of what the value of the land is, what the value of the resources underneath the land is. And then like the kind of unspoken question of like, what's the value of like the spiritual context of the land? And that's ultimately for me, that's one of the parts where I come back to the megaphone. It's like having done some work in Alice Springs and having had contact with the elders and like the, their support in a project that I did there. I, I learned so much about the perception of things that we look at as rocks and trees and um, mountains and like very naturalistic, like just organic objects. Um, 
and inorganic objects too, but the, um, the perception of things that are sacred sites when they're surrounded by like a commercial entity or destroyed to make a tire factory. Yeah. And seeing that level of it and seeing, you know, Ranger Mine at the end of Kakadu, I just have this feeling in a way that it's like Australia is simultaneously like this really wealthy developing, like it's, a, it's like a wealthy country, but also on top of that, it's like extremely successful in the integration of the culture. Why then can't we celebrate the extinct animals of this continent? And why can't we um, put into a little bit more context that like the, the biodiversity here is like one of the most unique biodiversities on the entire planet. You have this Petri dish that was floating around in the ocean for like millions of years on its own. And you have like such a wealth, even Queensland is like unbelievable for the biodiversity. And just with all of that, I feel like it's like, can't we celebrate something else? But right. Rather than, than war and loss of life, like there's other stuff underpinning. And particularly when you, when you draw to sort of indigenous right the underpinning of indigenous culture which is is land as spirituality Mm -hmm. Mm. and looking at that too previously like that that was my perception before now that i've gotten a little bit more of a sort of education on the anzacs from somebody who um i just i met him at the bar and i was talking to him a bit about it and he pointed out to me it's it's not about a victory it's actually like the celebration of defeat and in a certain way that's like one of the biggest like cornerstones of Australian culture is like, you know, not always being the best, not always having a perfect happy ending. It's being about the underdog. being the underdog and losing. Yeah. And when he put that out there, like it just it changed my perception entirely. Like instead of being against this thing that I, you know, couldn't understand, I look at it more with like some clarity as to like it's celebrating a defeat and if i can reference something that's celebrating a defeat for that extinction that's Mm. happened wouldn't it be you know an opportunity to reach out to a lot of people that perceive it in that light Uh, yeah to touch on it too in the context of a documentary about giant animals is pretty outrageous i think but marrying the two together might be the most like sort of tactful way to make it real for people that like this is also a loss and this loss is also worth a value that is more than just bones. It's like, it's actual life that's lost. Hmm. Mm. Sort of a moment silence for the animals, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, uh, yeah, well, I almost want to end there, but I actually have a sort of set of questions that I'd like to ask you more about yourself and the way that you practice on a personal level. And I want to know what it's like um, doing such a large project or large sets of projects and creative practices. I know you do music as well, which you haven't talked about, but while also living this sort of, is it fair to say sort of life of instability (laughs) where you're, where you're sort of jumping around country to country, visa hopping, that sort of stuff. Like, What's, what's it like sustaining a creative practice? What's, what's it like living that life and being a creative person with like sort of a, this is my vision. Oh, such a, such a like sharp question. Um, 
I wish we could just play bagpipes after the end of the last one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. It's about I mean, to get really heavy in here. Yeah, let's do it. Um, just when I when I think of all like the turmoil I've gone through over having to leave places, having to leave and say goodbye to people that I wasn't ready to say goodbye to, um, all the kind of compromises that I've made because like I know that I'm leaving in certain instances, like it puts you into so many gray areas where it's not a definable, but this is how it could be, or this is how it could be. It's like you put constantly into this position where you have these binaries that you can't um, relate to other people necessarily. You can't immediately relate to the next person sitting next to you on the plane when you're leaving somewhere. And like, you know, there's been a couple of like really, really, um, low moments like for sure just like moments of like oh, i don't want to go like especially the first time i had to leave it was like hanging on by my claws just didn't want to go but had to go and i left like at a really like a moment for me that felt like i should be there and then i went to new zealand and like i didn't know what was waiting for me in new zealand and i think having always hanging on to things it's like in life every day you can't even I mean you can't even hang on to a coffee cup it's like it's it's there but you know it could be gone the next day it's like everything is sort of fluid and flux and especially while you're traveling you get into these moments where it's just like oh I've got this jumper and I've had this jumper for like you know three years this jumper's gotten me through like so many crazy moments and like you, you start to develop like weird little like connections to the things that have lasted the longest. Like I had a backpack that was just like still going after two and a half years and it was just like, wow. But you also get to these other points where it's just like, I'm exhausted by the piles of things that I've left in places too. Like, I mean, working with giant things and using like a lot of objects to make those things and composite them, you, you end up with like weird piles of stuff and on the day you're leaving, it's like all your friends come over and we have like a small auction for everything, you know, it's like an auction, but like the real price is like, you make me a lasagna next time I come back or not even those kind of things. It's just like handing them out, like with the thought that like, you yeah, had these clamps that I have, I'll never see them again, but my friend's gonna clamp some crazy wood projects together with them. Or like this bag of papers that was like the first, like all the photocopies of the like critical literature on megafauna that I couldn't take it with me to New Zealand. I had to leave it here. Paper's heavy. It was just too heavy. And like my friend Dari, who I've known pretty much since my early days in Australia, he's been my good friend this entire time. And like he's got my bag of stuff in Melbourne still. There was like two giant puppets I had to leave behind. The museum, luckily, like they were like, yeah, we can hang on to them. And they put them in the basement for a while. And then when I came back for the second round, the museum was getting renovated. So like, yeah, look, we can't keep these here anymore. And I had to move them on. And like... I had to like say goodbye, you know, say goodbye to like my puppets and like there was nowhere to take them and like it's just so hectic leaving and I was on this like just like a very crazy path. The last time that I left Australia, it was like I, I didn't have um, a clear vision of return or anything. Like I left in, oh, it would have been like 2015, the end of 2015 with a Korean friend we flew to Indonesia, played music over there, like 
did some things and then I flew with him to Korea and I was like, I think Australia is so far away. How am I ever going to get back? Like, I don't know what to do. And I just like, I, well, I had to go back home for a while because it was just like this sort of, it was like, it was my time on the run was up. Like I needed to go back. I needed to see my like family. I needed to see my friends. And like, I went back in the dead of winter for like a two month work trip and like, you know, strategically planning it so I could see my family in the East Coast, family in the West Coast. And like, like going back to America, like pre-Trump, it was very ambiguous. And like, I don't know, like I, I had some really intense experiences in that time that like... How pre-Trump was it? What Pre-Trump, before we knew that Trump was going to be the president. Yeah. So this is like... Uh, Mid last year. This is a year before he got voted in oh well before he got inaugurated yeah sure so i was there for two months in this weird sort of ambiguous environment like i went to everywhere i went to like la uh san diego i went to utah to provo i did some filming of these like mormons that were there and like spent six days with them and like had what these, was the context for that it was a different documentary about like online marketing and people that are involved in it and it was like just production one of, the, of yours, or were you just it was something hand? that someone hired me for, and like they didn't have a very clear idea about it. I won't go into it because it's just a big ratness. But like through that project, I went around the United States and I saw all these different realities. You know, Las Vegas, Utah, Florida, Miami, um, Tampa, New York, upstate New York, Pennsylvania, and then I just left. I went back to Thailand where I'd been just like for a month before that and like carried on in Thailand and it was like sort of time to come back to Australia and I made plans with a girl that I had some magic with who's actually like she's a she's not a megafauna scientist but she studies marsupial phylogeny and we just really got along like phylogeny being uh family trees cool yeah so she's like refining family trees of possums uh, macropods and looking at like the morphological characteristics of their evolution and also referencing that with like genetic information and she's French and she's lovely and like her her favorite things are like one piece Pokemon fart jokes and cooking and letting animals into the house like I she's been inviting this bird into the house and it's like she's like Dr. Doolittle or something <laughs> yeah so like I, I'd made plans with her to like you know meet up and then we, we um, kind of made more plans to like keep like hanging out and I went back home for a bit and then organized to study and I've been studying business for the last year and I'm about to finish and I'm so goddamn happy, so sick of doing business assignments. Um, not to go too far into that rabbit hole, but it's like. It's been a valuable experience on some lights, but just absolutely painful. Like as a creative to go from, like I do, you know, work purely off of creative stuff. I teach painting. I do freelance video work. Like I've got a business sense enough to survive. I've made it for like three years without having a regular job. And um, even before that, there was like, you know, a year prep of just like playing violin and shredding and busking and like... Yeah. You know, like it's a it's a gradual thing going into like a professional creative practice, and it's almost different than having a creative practice. Um, yes, that's true. They're they're different things. It's like putting on a different pair of shoes, really, or a different hat. 
and like I wear many hats in my professional life, but I wear even more hats in my creative life. Like I'm just crazy about like 35 millimeter film. I'm crazy about like chemistry and like all the things that are coming out now, like VR video. It's just like, I, I'm so like passionate about the things that I want to do in my creative practice. And I've just been like fighting through this year to finish that business degree, pay all my student, um, debt. student debt, which is another whole horrible, horrible thing. Like I wanted to do a master's here, but up until this point, like after researching every university in town, like every option possible, like I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think Australia, for as much as I could bring to the academic world of Australia with the wealth of interviews that I've gathered and like just in terms of my creative practice, I do feel like I'm very strong and I have like a very um, unique skill set not just, I mean, everyone who says they're multi-artist has, you know, their own unique definition of what multi-art is for them. Yeah. And, yeah, 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 you know, yeah. for me, I feel like it's like, I know what pieces I'm working with and I know how to reference things and I know how to like, you know, really develop something into like, you know, a tangible ball. But for now, I just end up having to work on like little side projects, you know, like doing promo videos and translating them into four languages. Um, you know, teaching drunk people how to paint. You have to make a living in this life. And, you know, ultimately money is energy and yeah. you have to make energy or you're going to go homeless. Money is energy is time is how I like to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. But there's good things in the next year. Like uh, once I finish the degree, I'm going to be clearing up into a kind of a new phase of life and like really focusing more on the things that I meant to come here to do and, you know, have a business diploma to show for it. Yeah, good. Yeah. So what is what is next after the House Conspiracy Residency? Next after House Conspiracy Residency, um, koalas in trees, like giant koalas in trees, um, climbing up on ladders, reconquering the fear of ladders built up from breaking my hand, yeah. Uh, tree climbing techniques. Um, those are that's one side of it, and then there's also this collaboration with a designer in Sydney um, for a clothing label called Cake. That um, you know, recently I just went down to Sydney to help him kind of finish off his masters and do the showcase, and like helped him you know work within the space. And uh, yeah, we'll be collaborating on some stuff, um, and I think that's kind of like for me, it's. It's someone that I've known the almost the entire time I've been in Australia. When I first met him, he said, oh, my name's Pancakes. <laughs> and the girl I was with at the time, she's like, his name's Pancakes? What? And like, I don't know. If someone introduces me and says their name is Pancakes, I'll give him the time of day. I want to know why. Yeah. I want to know like what's in your soul. And he's just, he's the cruisiest person. He's able to like pilot his way through this weird fashion world and the ego and like still make a really strong statement and like through his clothes too it's like i i can see that it's like you know he's a professional illustrator and he's done concept art and all these things but like the whole time he was like working he was like buying you know like ridiculous designer clothes and now he's just like pursued that passion so like you know i'm all for helping someone that i you know i i love him he's like my brother like and it's like for me to team up with him and like for him to just be like, look, you're part of my label. You don't have a choice. It's like, okay, this is something that is worth the time. Sweet. So 
that's one of the next things, you know. Can't wait to see that happening. In um, Papua New Guinea. Papua New Guinea is like long-term Um Cool. Well, um, to sort of wrap it up from there, I'm excited to see what you do with, with clothes. Um, where okay. can people find you online? Oh, online. Um, yeah. Um, I have a website called master-builder. .squarespace.com. That's one place to find me. And Master Builder is not a construction company. <laughs> it's actually unregistered Master Builder for all those unregistered Master Builders out there constructing galaxies and making crazy things out of construction materials. And it has like a bit of everything on there. There's some t-shirts, there's some of the videos, there's some music and... Um, other places to find me online. I, I prefer in person. I, I'd rather meet someone in person than online. And I'm running an event called Poetry Slam of Experimental Sorts. Yes. Which I might just drop a little bit because it's just it. terminated at Padre. Um, yes, because Padre, Padre Saint Murillo. Rest in peace. Rest in peace. We won't go into why, but it's. it's I actually don't know why. Fill me in after. Yeah, anyway. it's, it's not important why. It's more important that it's like. The things that happen there are going to continue elsewhere, and we're taking it on the road. We're taking it to Ipswich. We're taking it to Cleveland. We're taking it to West End, probably uh, more permanently. There's some things in the works for it, and it's basically just like a poetry event for people who have, you know, an interest in poetry, or like they might be a plumber in their real life, but they do write poems. You know, people that don't consider themselves necessarily poets. It's like I, I've really built this event over the last four months to kind of make a space. And it's also like music with poetry. So there's like violin, there's flutes and like DJing going on. And what I do is just kind of try to like drive the vibe with the violin mm -hmm. and push it in different directions and make a space so people can talk about things like haunted bush turkeys and Highgate Hill, Tony Frogmouths eating children, um, or even read things like T.S. Eliot um, or their own works. It's, it's a really open-ended format and you know, with moving venues, it sort of frees things up to take it into different directions and maybe incorporate more visuals with it. So that's where it's going. Um, Rad. And I can't say just the venue just yet, but there's something that's teed up potentially that's very, very nice. Sweet. Well, yeah, keep me in the loop. I really need to make it out uh, to that and more things in general. Um, hey, uh, thanks so much. This has been really, really, really fascinating. Likewise, this has been really interesting. I would like to interview you sometime, let's, make my own podcast. Let's let's make a time. All right. Sick. Thanks, Thank Jeff. Thank you. The House Conspiracy Podcast is produced at House Conspiracy by me, Jonathan O'Brien, and Tyler William Morrison. Mixing and editing by Tyler William Morrison. And music by the Reverend Isha Ramdas. If you'd like to support House Conspiracy, you can do so at houseconspiracy.org slash donate, and you can learn more about what we offer here at houseconspiracy.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>